We thank God for this season at Grace, all the ways that God is moving right now. Matt and Nitra joining the team. We added Pastor Jesse with hair, student ministries. Uh, God is providing in so many ways. People are returning every weekend. People are saying it was the first time back in over a year, and we are thrilled to welcome you back. We have so many new people coming to Grace. We have people jumping into life groups. We have people stepping up to serve. We have Next Gen Ministries right now, three camps. God is doing amazing things with Next Gen. Uh, people are joining the church every week or every month. There's more people joining our church family. And this last week, we saw several people put their trust in Jesus for the first time and begin a relationship with God. So can we give God praise for all the things he's doing right now? We are in a series where our focus is listening to God. We're going through the Minor Prophets. And today we'll be in Malachi chapter 2. If you brought a Bible or you want to find that on your phone, we love to get into God's Word. We also are thrilled when everyone has their own copy of God's Word. So if you need a Bible at any time, let us know. The theme in this chapter is where's the leadership? And we're going to see a lot of things not to do in this chapter. But there's a lot of learning about a foundation of leadership flourishing in our lives as well. And the situation was wasn't vibrant then, but God gives a vision in this chapter that I think we want to take hold of as we listen to God. And a lot of times, if we're honest, there's misunderstandings about leadership. Sometimes we kind of say no thanks to leadership, or we really limit in terms of what God wants to do in your life. So let's pray together. Let's pray for leaders as we seek God. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Jesus, you're our leader. We follow you. We trust you. You're trustworthy. And we listen to you. We seek you. Thank you, God, how you lead and guide us. Jesus, you're our good shepherd. And Father, we lift up leaders today, local leaders, national leaders, even leaders around the world, political leaders, God, military leaders, they'd make good decisions. Father, spiritual leaders, educators, leaders in every field, leaders in the home. Father, we need your help. Lord, we know you've given us influence, and we want to use that influence for your glory. We pray that you would strengthen today, encourage, and give fresh vision. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. God has called you to be an influencer. And when you hear that, maybe you think, not me, or not as much as other people, or I'm really not that interested. That doesn't sound exciting. That sounds kind of superficial. Maybe some manipulation. Maybe you've had some negative experiences with different leaders. And when you hear this topic, you're hesitant and think, maybe this doesn't apply to me as much as others. Well, let's go back to God's word and God's heart, God's vision, God's plan. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is writing to brothers and sisters that he loves in Ephesus. He is praying for them. And this is what he says, God's incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Don't miss the vision that God lays out, that God's presence is with us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You're not alone. Christ is with you, his presence. And then also his power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in your life. 
And then your position in the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. We are his hands and feet. God has placed all things underneath Christ. That means he's given you a position of influence in this world, stewardship, responsibility, and leadership. His presence is with you. His power in your weakness. You abide with Jesus. This is how God designed you in his image. He doesn't want you to shrink that vision or rationalize it or make excuses. He wants you to receive his word his vision for your life personally, and also all of us together. Now, would you agree that kind of changes and stretches your view of influence and leadership and who you are today as you sit down right here in God's presence together? Well, as we go through the book of Malachi, the setting is over 400 years before Christ was here on the earth. And there was a drought of leadership. There was a rut. There was a lot of disappointment. There was a lot of stuff that was very unhealthy with leadership. And we live in a culture today where we have many examples of leadership going the wrong direction. And we pay close attention. We want to listen to God in this chapter because God was calling the people then to return from exile to rebuild, and that there would be revival. And God is calling us out of the pandemic to return to him, to rebuild together, and his kingdom is what we're building for his glory, that there'd be revival in our hearts, in our homes, in the church, and in the communities where we live. This is a foundation of leadership and influence that God wants us to have that leads to a life that's flourishing for his glory. We're going to look at three truths about influence and leadership today. Here's the first one. Your character is influential, and it's based on your reverence for God. Your character is formed based on your reverence for God. The leaders and the people during the time of Malachi, they lost a reverence for God. And when you lose a reverence and respect for God, there's all kinds of things that break out. Let's take a look at some of those symptoms. Chapter 2, verse 1. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord, I will send a curse upon you. I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. What happened? The heart of the leaders suddenly moved away from God, don't want to honor God, and then their words caused people to stumble. Their words were hurtful. Their words were misleading. They had false teaching. Why? Because when your heart's in the wrong place, then the words that come out are not going to be positive. And God sees this as they're causing more people to stumble. You know, leaders can cause a lot of people to stumble. They're causing people to stumble. God steps in because there's accountability. The leaders are walking around like, who's going to hold us accountable? God answers and says, I'm going to hold you accountable. Jesus looked at the corrupt religious leaders at his time, Pharisees and Sadducees. He showed up. He held them accountable. They hated him because Jesus held the leaders accountable. Well, God sometimes removes people from a position. It could be in a church. It could be as a king we see in the Bible. But yes, when there's damage done, God sees it. It's just a matter of time before he brings accountability. That's what he's doing here. Well, what were the specific things that the leaders were indulging in that was inappropriate, that was sinful? Look at verse 9. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all people because you have not followed my ways but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Partiality is a sin. 
Well, what does partiality look like? Partiality looks like someone who has a lot of money gets a different treatment and different attention than someone who doesn't have as much money. And this is classic in churches and religious circles. The one who has a lot of money, they knew who the big givers were. I have no idea what anyone gives to grace. I'm not really interested in that. Uh, you know what? The people would come down, the big givers, and they would say, wow, special attention for you, special treatment for you. And don't hold the big givers accountable because we don't want to lose the money. So don't call them on their stuff. Just let them do what they want to do. And this was all based on this favoritism around money and giving. And partiality is a sin. It's not always around money. Sometimes it's around age. Sometimes it's around race. Sometimes it's around gender. There's a lot of ways that we can put one group of people above another group of people, and it's sin. And the Bible says in James chapter 2, this isn't just an Old Testament situation in Malachi, but for thousands of years, really, there's been a struggle with this. James is the half-brother of Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 1, this is what James says, God speaking through him. My brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and then a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but then say to the poor man, uh, you stand over there or just sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Double standards and favoritism, it's a sin. Partiality was a sin. And it's a two-edged coin because when you go down that road, what you end up doing is you enable the person who no longer has accountability. You enable that person to just indulge and stay in that sin. And you also undermine someone else who you treat as second class. And it happens at the same time, enablement and undermining. And God saw it and he said, we're not having it. And he called them out. Now, here, here's another specific that was happening. And this is in verse 10. Have we not all one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign God. Now, we don't use that phrase, breaking faith, very often. It means breaking trust, breaking respect. And people broke faith with God, and then they broke faith with one another. They mistreated one another. Now, God gives a specific explanation of what's happening here. And when you first hear it, it's like, wait, what is that? Marrying someone of a foreign God? Well, here's the situation. Someone loves God, and then they marry someone who worships an idol. And how does that look in the marriage then? Because your faith is core in your life. And when that's the case, you can't share that together. So what's going to happen? It's going to move. It's not just going to stay static or stuck. And this is what was happening. People who used to love God were marrying people who were worshiping idols. And then pretty soon, they started to compromise. They started to drift from God. They stopped worshiping God. And now they're worshiping idols. 
And instead of being a light in that marriage, now they're influenced in that marriage. Now they've turned away from God. Their faith is watered down, compromised, and they don't even turn to God anymore. That's how it was playing out. And it's a reminder that we are the bride of Christ. And our role in this world is not to imitate this world, to conform to the patterns of this world. Our role in this world, culture changers, world changers, influencers. Not influenced, primarily. Yes, there's going to be some influence, but my concern is that so often the church has been influenced more by the world than the church has influenced the world. And in this relationship we have with God, we push some things aside so we can comfortably fit in. And that's a picture of rejecting God, and God sees that, and that's what was happening in marriages in a specific way. Well, there's one more example from marriage that God points out that was common. And this is in verse 14. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting in the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he's also seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. This is what was happening in the culture. Now, sadly, it was very male-dominated, sometimes, you know, with a tyrant attitude. Uh, and th the men were the one who were leaving the marriages. And the commentary says this is what would happen. The men would say, you know what? I want somebody new. I want a change. I want somebody different. I want somebody younger. I want somebody who looks like that. So they would break off the marriage and the men would find someone, pursue that person, and the divorce rate was, was high because that's the typical behavior that many men were choosing. And God saw that, and yet they twisted the scripture, and they would say, because they knew some of the Bible, they'd say, well, Deuteronomy 24, God, you say in your word, you make allowances, there's some exceptions, acceptable sometimes to not stick with the marriage and move on and find somebody new. And you know, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, that if someone's unfaithful, if adultery is there, yes, that person... They've broken a covenant. Now, there could still be restoration, but a lot of times there isn't because that person's slept with somebody else. Now, you take all that together, and they're trying to twist it to say, see, there's situations. I can just do what I want. I can leave who I want. If it's not working out well, it's not easy. I can move on. And they tried to twist Scripture around. And God pointed out, no, this is about your heart. This is about the hardness of your heart. You are to guard the unity, guard the purity, don't let your heart get hard. Forgive the other person. Don't cause the other person to stay with a hard heart. It's not that God wants adultery and says, oh, that's a great option. Yeah, take that option. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he cares. He wants to protect and provide. And when they lost respect for God and his word, then they're just going to do what they want in marriage. And that was the culture then. So all these things were happening. And the irony is God sends a messenger. Malachi's name means, you know, God, your messenger. God sends a messenger to the messengers. The messengers are supposed to be spreading the hope and spreading the good news. But instead, God sends Malachi to those messengers. You say, well, how could things turn around? How do things turn around in our life when I go astray, when you go astray? Well, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 9 says this. Instruct a wise man or woman, and they will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, he will add to his learning. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We need to humble ourselves before God. We want to listen to God for his wisdom and listen close. We want to be people who are teachable because when we're humble and teachable and we're growing in wisdom and we're honoring God, now we're blessing other people because that's what will flow from a life that is abiding with Jesus. There will be fruit and there will be blessing for other people. You know, the priests had a blessing in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers, and this is what they would say as they blessed other people. The Lord bless you and keep you and make your fa- his face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And the problem is they would say those words, but their hearts were far from God. And the goal in that blessing is not just to speak some words of a blessing over people. The goal is that their lives were a blessing and the words would just overflow. And when you think about the foundation of our lives and then the flourishing that can happen... When you bless other people, you pray for other people. You listen to other people. You take them out for a meal. You serve people. You share your story with people. You listen to their story. You share your faith with people. Blessing people. That's what God's designed you to do. That's what God's designed me to do. Life is not fulfilling when we're self-consumed. But when we bless other people, we're alive, abiding with Jesus. One incredible thing that's happened during this year and the difficulties of the pandemic are what we call hope boxes here at Grace. And we built these little boxes and then together as a church family, we add things to them. And for you, it might be a gift card or some food or it could be a gift. And put it inside the hope box And then we give the hope box. It's a tangible expression of God's love. It's a way to bless other people. And there's been almost a thousand of the hope boxes that you've taken, praying for people, giving a gift, and making a difference in someone's week, month, and sometimes a year. And I say that just to say, thank you, Lord. That's what we're designed to do, be a blessing in hard times. And we continue. The staff continues to make more hope boxes. They're in the lobby. You can grab one anytime you want to bless someone. Put some things in there and just love someone in a tangible way. That's what they were supposed to be doing. A solid foundation and their character and then flourishing, even in difficult times. But they push God aside. Here's the second part of uh, influence. Good stewardship of your influence leads to a deep connection and also transformed lives. When you hear the word stewardship, a lot of people, they just think of my possessions, my house, my car, my finances. Yes, that is part of stewardship, but your greatest influence is in relationships. It's not in the stuff you own. It's with the people around you and the love you bring and the prayers and the words. And, you know, I'm going to share about two coaches that had a massive influence in my life, and they were much more than just coaches. Here's some pictures. The first one, Buzz Lagos. Buzz Lagos is so passionate about soccer. And he's one of those coaches that would get in the field and practice with us. Not all coaches do. And Buzz really only has clear vision out of one eye. And the other eye, he can't see that much. But Buzz would be out there with us, playing, heading the ball, sweating. His hair would be all over. And he would be saying, yes, I like it. Magic, yes. And and we were just looking around like, we need more of what he's got. And he was so 
passionate about it. And uh, when, when I think about Buzz, uh, he knew how to develop people. It wasn't just his passion, but he knew how to develop us. I had no idea how to be a goalkeeper. And he taught me how you catch a ball in the W and how to land and how to dive and how to reach out further and how to catch crosses and how to distribute the ball. He taught me everything I knew about being a goalkeeper. And not only myself, but he did it with every person on the team. Have you been around a leader in a culture where they just empower people? And it's like, oh, that person's learning. That person's growing. That person's developing. And that was our team. We were kind of like Hoosiers in one sense because my high school was less than 400 students. And we were playing against all the big schools with 2,000 students. And we would show up to the games and I would see the other team and I'm thinking they're bigger, they're faster, and they're stronger than us. But he saw our potential and that potential and passion and he took us places where we could never go. We didn't think we could win the state tournament in the Dome, you know, 6,000 fans and knock off these big schools. But he saw potential in us. And that's a gift when you're in a culture, when you're around a leader that sees your potential and helps take you there. Buzz Lagos was much more than a soccer coach for me because during that time in my life, my parents got divorced when I was seven. And then my mother had a boyfriend who I was very close with, but then they broke up. So then he was not in the picture. And then my mother remarried and I had a stepdad that I was just starting to get to know. But Buzz Lagos was my coach at the end of elementary school and middle school and high school. And so it was steady with Buzz Lagos. He'd pile us into the station wagon, but we knew he cared about us so much. And it was more than just soccer, it was relationships. Now, I want to mention one other coach, and this is Bobby Clark, and he's from Scotland. I right away just loved his accent, his perspective on life. Uh, he taught us about mindset, and he would, every day, it's a great day, and, you know, lads, you've got to focus on the wee things. It's the wee things, he would say. Ah, it's the wee things. And the little things, meaning do the little things right, and the bigger stuff's going to come together. Meaning the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. And this was new for us. I mean, we just, you know, again, starting out of college, and we're learning new stuff. And Coach had this way of open, honest communication where you could talk with him about anything in life or anything with the sport. Open door, you knew you could bring it up. If someone didn't like their playing time, they could go, hey coach, how come I'm on the bench? And he would say, well, these are your strengths. This is where you need to improve. And he would just lay it out. And it was like that, open and honest. And it was just something that stuck with me. Coach built family. Coach built family. We still have friendships that decades later, we call each other, Zoom together. Uh, why are we in so close contact? Because coach built family. And he understood it was more than soccer. And again, that was a time in my life where I left, moved away, cross country, starting college. And I was looking for, okay, who is a figure in my life that's kind of a dad figure? Who's a mentor? And that was coach. And many of you have played that role with other people. And what they both understood is this is far more about soccer. Their passion for soccer, you know, is like a 10 out of 10, but they had the vision and understood it's about culture, it's about influence, it's about life more than soccer, and it's about people. And I say this to encourage you today that if you're a coach, you know your influence is profound. It is way more than just the team and the wins and the losses. If you're an educator, if you're a teacher at a school, the connection you have with those students, so powerful. If you work in a hospital, if you're, you know, any of these roles, coworker, you're more than just a coworker. People are looking to you beyond the job description. And you have so much influence where God 
God places you, it's not by accident. In your neighborhood, you're more than just two houses down. You're there with a greater purpose. And God wanted the people to see and understand this great purpose and leadership and influence. And it's not an influence just so, oh, it's about me. No, this is an influence for God's glory. This is an influence that serves other people. This kind of influence, this kind of vision. And God gives the positive example of the Levites. And in chapter 2, verse 4, God describes, it's really a contrast. And he says, and you will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him. And it's a covenant of life and a covenant of peace. I gave them to him. This called for reverence and he revered me and he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. God chose the Levites to be priests in Numbers chapter 1. They had a unique role, but more importantly than what they did, it's who they are. They set their hearts on God in the abiding with God. And out of that, they did a lot of stuff. God had work for them at the tabernacle, work for them at the church, work for them at the temple. Uh, you know, they did that work, but it flowed out of a foundation and a heart that was set on God in close abiding with God. And as they did that, you know what the result was? Here's the fruit. Many people turn from sin. Many people turn to God. You don't know how closely people really watch you. And they might not say right away, I appreciate your integrity. I saw your generosity. I see the way you talk to people. I see your patience when you don't like something. They might not affirm you like that, but they notice. And you know what happens over time when you're consistent? They start to think, maybe there's a different way. What do you have? Is this about God? And they start to see some of the patterns in their life and some of the destruction in those patterns and unhealthy in some ways. And they say, I want some of that. And they say, I'm going to let go of this selfishness and I want to live more generous and unselfish like that and the Levites as they just abiding with God people saw their lives they saw what was coming out of their mouths and they said I want to drop some of the sin and I want to walk with God like that and it started to move things started to move here's four C's to consider the first one is commitment here's our response to God how do you respond to a God that's so good and gracious and loving and faithful well, we commit our lives to him. We say, Jesus, I want to follow you. And that commitment, it's a relationship with a commitment. And when that commitment's there, then you know what happens? The next C is character. Because as you follow Jesus, it's not you with a bunch of self-help, but the Holy Spirit is in you. God works in you. Your character starts to change and you become more like Jesus. Because the more you trust Jesus and abide like Jesus, the more you become like Jesus. And as your character changes, the next C is cause. Suddenly his cause becomes important to you. And his priorities become your priorities. And his passion becomes your passion. And the way he loves people becomes the way you love people. And this starts to change and you think instead of my kingdom, I want to build his kingdom. And you find a cause that's close to his heart. And what breaks God's heart starts to break your heart. And you come alive because now you've got a cause and you're living for something that's bigger, that's eternal, that's international. And out of that, you step into these relationships and the fourth C is connection. Because people are what's most important. So you connect with people and your relationships look different. It starts with commitment. And God changes your character. 
And as he does that, you embrace this new cause and you come alive and you connect with people. And this is how God works. And this is called worship. Worship. Worship is not just what three songs we playing, how's the guitar player doing today? <laughs> That's not, yes, those three songs are significant. Yes, we meet with God. But worship is this. It's our lives. It's that respond to a good God with commitment and character change in his cause and connecting and serving other people. And that's a life of worship. And so let's come back to the term leadership. And let's just think for a second, who's the leader of Grace Community Church? Well, that's an easy question. Jesus is the leader. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the one we all follow. And then on a human level, you say, well, wait a second. Leadership of Grace Community Church, that's the elders. And you say, why elders? Well, elders comes from scripture. It's God's idea, not our idea. And we think it's a great idea. We've got a group of elders that serve. They are humble. They are united. They've been faithful. They are not paid. We pray. We vote on elders every year. And this group has led us very well, by God's grace, through the pandemic. And, and the elders, you say, well, wait a second. I thought we had pastors. And we do. We have pastors. And pastors are really involved in the daily ministry of the church. And they're leading. But the pastors would be quick to say, wait a second. We don't just have pastors. We have a staff team. We have this team together. We're one team. And then the team, the staff team would say, Ephesians chapter 4, we're not here to just do everything. We're here to equip and build up and empower the church family. And we see there's about 200 people that have stepped up and said, I can lead. I can take this on. I would be honored to serve. So we have about, I don't know, 200 or so people in terms of leaders at Grace. And then you say, well, wait, is that kind of where leadership is? Biblically, leadership influencers goes far beyond that. We are the body of Christ. We are all influencers. We are all leading. This is what you need to understand. Talking about the Levites, they were the priests in the Old Testament. You know who the followers of Jesus all are? We are all priests. We are all priests. What does a priest do? A priest represents the people with God and represents God with the people. That's what a priest does. You are a Priest. Let's just say that together. You are a priest. Turn to the person next to you, just wave to him to say, Hi, priest. We didn't do that at nine o'clock, but we're doing it right now. Hi, priest. For some of you, you're like, I knew this theologically, but I haven't really been living like that. For some people, you're like, I've never heard this before. Is this a cult? No, it's not a cult. This is biblical. This is biblical. Uh, you are a priest. What do you do? You represent people with God and God with people. When you pray for someone, what are you doing? You're bringing that person to God's throne in prayer. You're representing. When you go to your job, when you're in your neighborhood, what are you? You're a priest. Through your words and your actions, your attitudes, the way you serve, talking about God, you are representing God with the people around you. You are a priest. You have an influence as a priest that God has given to you to steward, to steward this influence and be intentional. It goes back to where we started, Ephesians chapter 1. You are in the body of Christ. Christ is with you. You have power in your weakness 
And God's power is at work, and he's given you a position in the body of Christ to lead and to influence, and his picture is fullness. Now, uh, I believe this is God's vision, that all of his people are filled with his spirit, all places, all days of the week. That is all, 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 and all. That's God's vision. Sometimes in the church, we try to shrink it and say, oh, it's just the staff, or it's only Sundays, or it's just when you're in the church building. That is not the vision from God. It is all of his people where we live, work, learn, or play during the week. We gather and it's awesome and we worship God. And then I get excited when we scatter and we're in different places because I can't be at your workplace. I can't be in your neighborhood. I'm not on that team. I'm not in that class. I can't be in all those places. I can't be, but you are. And together we are the body of Christ. Don't ever settle for a quarter or 10% or 40% of God's vision for your life and for the church. And that's what this is teaching us. Here's the third truth. Your relationship as an influencer ideally is consistent, intentional, and inspiring. Your relationship as, you, as you're a priest. Uh, John Maxwell has a book that our staff is going through, and there's different levels of leadership. I want to just mention three. The first one is kind of the lowest level of leadership. It's called positional. When someone has a position and you have to follow them. Maybe you've had a boss or an employee that you have to follow because they're your employee. Have a good attitude, but the only reason you're really doing it is because they have the position. Now, as you move up, there's a middle level, which is performance. And you respect a leader, not just because they have the position, but because of the work they're doing for the organization or the company or the church. And you respect, and that's a performance respect. But the highest level of leadership is personal. And you respect someone because of who they are. Not just because they have a title, not just because they've done some good things for the organization, but because you know them. What God is calling us to do is be people who are respected because of who we are and whose we are and to shine that light of the Lord in a way that leads people to Jesus. Now, in our church, there are both formal and informal opportunities. Formal, I think about Grace Kids. Thank you for all the people that have been stepping up. We have well over 100 kids coming in on a weekend. We still have about 15 roles in the rotation. So a great opportunity. But thank you for those who are serving the kids. That's more of a formal role, right? Where you can have influence. Uh, we've got a lot of open doors there. But there's also informal. And I love what someone said to me last week. And they said, you know, when I come to church, this is what I do. I just look around. And I just start to pray. I just start to look around and pray for people. And then I ask God to lead me. And I say, well, who might be here for the first time? Who might be having a tough week? Who needs me just to listen? Uh, who could I maybe share some encouragement with? Or maybe they want to hear part of my story. Maybe I actually pray with them. Lord, who is it today? And they say, that's how I do church every weekend. I just show up and I look around and I start praying for people. And I say, Lord, just lead me to, to whoever needs some encouragement today. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. Isn't that sadly unusual. Uh, it, you think that's radical. That's, that's biblical. I mean, you, you show up at church and you mean like you're not consumed with ourselves. You actually look around and like, who could I connect with and serve and encourage today? That's influence. 
That's informal. That doesn't have a job description. That doesn't have a thou shalt. You know, that, that is one of those where it's love and overflow and it's just how you do life. And when we all start doing life like that, oh, there's going to be such strength of relationships. You won't contain it in the building. It'll overflow. Because again, consistent, intentional, and inspiring. Uh, here's a strong sentence, and I want to unpack it. The Lord says this, I hate divorce, verse 16. And then also he adds, I hate a man's covering himself with violence. Well, what does that mean exactly? God hates divorce. God hates violence. This is our father's heart to protect and to provide, to protect and to provide. And when he says that, I want to make it very clear. When God says, I hate divorce, he is not saying if you're here today and you've had divorce, that he hates you. He is not saying he hates you. But what is he saying here? Uh, with God, there's restoration after divorce. There's healing after divorce. Our church has a position paper. You might not know that if someone has had a divorce, they can still serve in any role at our church. We have elders who um, have gone through a divorce. Now, uh, you know, there's a process of healing and building up. But I want to say there's grace here. And also, we have a very high view of marriage. We want to align with whatever scripture says about marriage. Well, if your marriage is going through a difficult time, I want to tell you that we have counselors, Christian counselors. We have marriage investors uh, for other couples. We have uh, Abide and Responds, a website. We have videos and discussion questions. Uh, we have resources with conferences. If your marriage is struggling, uh, please, we want to come alongside you and we'd be honored uh, to be part of that healing process. Uh, we believe that God can bring so much restoration. If people seek God and are humble and forgive, we believe God can bring healing and change can happen. Uh, those are some views of marriage. Uh, but but I, what I want to um, point out here is that God um, hates violence and, and why does he hate divorce? Because he knows how much pain can come with violence and divorce. And he knows the depth of the pain. He knows the duration of the pain. He knows how it can affect kids, how it can affect families when there's violence and you can't have things back that you used to have. So God's heart is to protect and to provide. And, and that's what I, I hope you hear in that scripture. It also makes me appreciate dads here at Grace. We have a lot of dads who have a legacy actually in their family of generations who have been honoring God, who have been kind to their wives, who have been raising up children with authenticity and teaching them about Jesus and his love. And it's powerful. When you have a legacy like that of generations following Jesus in a solid way, really the impact and influence is exponential. It is. And then we have other dads that I so appreciate at Grace where you're blazing a new trail for your family. You know, you are becoming what you didn't have. And you long for a father like that, but you, that one's close to the heart, uh, you are going in a new direction. You say, well, what does that look like? Uh, you know, for dads here at Grace, both dads, uh, this is what I'd say is, first of all, you are here. You are there. And for many people, you didn't have dad here. You didn't have dad there. But you are there. And the ministry of presence is so significant. And, and you're not just there, but you care. You're not just in the room, but you care. And you're generous 
and you're kind. Uh, we have many dads who are sacrificially serving, providing in different ways for the family. We have many dads that are standing up protecting the family where protection is needed. And then we have many dads who are intimately connecting with their kids. And that is so healthy. That is so biblical. You just look at how Jesus in relationships connected with so many different people deeply. And you might maybe had a false notion of manhood where it's like, no, that's not what real men do. Yes, it is. It's that emotional connection. We are emotional beings. And when that connection happens, it's what a child needs. And also dads who are spiritually saying, church is important. We're going to worship God. We're going to honor the word. Let's, let's pray. And maybe for some dad, it's new to open a Bible or not even sure how to pray, but like, let's learn how to do this then. Uh, but dads that are spiritually setting a culture and a tone that's healthy in the home. And when God is in this passage talking, he does talk about the church environment, but he also talks about the home. Because what they had then was a bunch of people who were religious in the church building, and they even gave, they even shed some tears at church. You know, they, they attended. But home, oh, home, home. And God is bringing health in the home and the church. He's not interested just in these walls of the church. It's the home as well. So we're so thankful for dads at grace and inspiring all of us. Spurgeon said this about fatherhood, encouraging dads. He said, gather the little ones around your knee and listen to their words. Remind your children of the Lord, his grace and his promises. Be tender with your kids, but also bring truth Teach them the whole truth. And from the beginning of their lives, mingle Jesus with the ABCs. I like the way he says that. Mingle Jesus with the ABCs. Kids need knowledge, but they also need souls that are thriving. So care for both with your kids. The, the summary is the core of every relationship is trust. And trusting God develops you as a trustworthy influencer. When you trust God, your character becomes trustworthy and your influence and your light shines. And what they skipped over in this context is a deep transformation. You know, they were rebuilding and returning. They returned from exile, but they didn't return to God. They were rebuilding the walls and the temple and the city, but they were not rebuilding their families. They were not rebuilding their walk with God. And the revival that God would bring, they didn't experience. They didn't go through the deep transformation. Instead, they had a religious checklist of, I attend, I worship a little, and I give. And they thought, let's skip over the deep work and let's just check the boxes. And God wants to go deep. Well, God wants to go deep. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you go deep with us in our lives, in our homes, when we're in private, our thoughts, our attitudes. Lord, we cry out for our families, for health, God, in our relationships. Lord, we can't force it. But we want to abide with you, Jesus, and ask that you would bring healing and restoration. We want to humble ourselves before you. We want to be teachable. And Lord, we know there's no limits to what you can do. God will give you the glory. Thank you for giving us opportunities every day, words to say, an attitude, relationships. And we give you praise for what you're going to do this week and what you're going to do this year. We pray in your name. Amen. 
Yo, subscribe to YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> subscribe to this channel.